0: unexpected things that happen, which trigger almost like magical sequences, are much more likely that you have people who come, all come from the same culture,
1: all have the same background. Welcome to Architect Sessions One to One. I'm Amelia Taylor-Hochberg, and this week, February 1st, 2016, I speak with Elsie Owusu, founder of the London-based firm Elsie Owusu Architects, national council member at the Royal Institute of British Architects, and vice chair at the London School of Architecture. Born in Ghana, Awusu moved to England as a young girl, and today has completed work in the UK and back in Ghana. But it's likely that many architectors hadn't heard of Awusu until December of last year, when we reported on claims of institutional racism she had made against Reba, alleging that they had rigged an election she was up for in favor of another candidate, who wasn't an elected Reba council member. In my correspondence with Owusu, she analogized the issue this way, I'm paraphrasing. An African-American or minority ethnic female actor, Owusu, being nominated for an Oscar, only to have a white actor who hasn't even made a film parachuted in and given an award for Best Supporting Actor. I wanted to speak with Owusu about the issues of diversity and exclusion in practice generally, and also at the institutional level of RIPA. We discussed the allegations, but Owusu was quick to point out that these conversations need to happen regardless of any publicized incidents. Keeping these discussions going is vital if the profession is ever going to improve. I hope you enjoy my one-to-one with Elsie Owusu. Why don't you tell me how you first got into architecture? Well,
0: my first memory of being interested in architecture was when I was about nine and I started being interested in. I mean, I've always drawn lots and lots, but I started connecting that with buildings and designing buildings and and looking at the environment. I mean, I'm not sure that I would have called it architecture at that time. I would have called it, I think, being interested in buildings and and you know the world around myself and plants and trees and and that of the environment being interested in that sort of environment involves buildings as well but coming from Ghana where people are constantly talking about making buildings, making homes, making, and as an independent country, that was very much part of a newly independent African country that was building very much part of the conversation, you know, how to make a new country and how to make new structures in a new country. So I think my earliest memory of being interested in what I now would describe as architecture and the built environment was when I was about nine.
1: And then what brought you to London and how did you begin practicing in London?
0: Well, when I was about, um, so we moved to London when I at that age when I was nine, which in retrospect, I suppose, the change of environment from a sort of tropical country to a northern country would, would have sparked my interest, I guess. So when I was about 18, I fell in with um, a group of students who were at the Royal College, Imperial College, the Slade School of Art and the Architectural Association, and um, one of my one of my friends, one of my then friends, still former friends, suggested that I should talk to Keith Critchlow, who was a, a tutor at the AA. And so, just having finished my A levels, I went to see Keith Critchlow and interviewed for the AA and the Architectural Association, and was offered a place and started there just just before my. 21st birthday
1: I think. Wow so you are. oh as soon as you finished through what might be in the American uh, parallel like the high school education. Yeah. You then immediately went went into architecture and so what was your understanding of your abilities as an architect? What did you want to accomplish? Was it something along the lines of the kind of nation-building ideas that you might have picked up from your history in Ghana or was it something more um, present in London?
0: Well, I, I had been, I had the, that time, um, I, I didn't go straight from school. I went from school, I had, a, I had my daughter when I was quite young, um, and after I'd had my daughter, I, I went back to my schooling and got my A-levels, and that's when I was in Brixton and became involved in community architecture, and so it was all around that time. So when I went to the AA, I was very much interested in community architecture, and um, was part of a community street group. So you know, it was campaigning architecture, campaigning for the preservation of listed, what we now call listed buildings, but buildings which at that time, the early 70s, were scheduled for demolition. And so part of the activist campaign was to preserve those buildings. And it was that sort of mood, I suppose, that sort of campaigning mood which in which I entered the AA and I mean it was very the AA was a radical school well saw itself as a a radical campaigning school well certain parts of it so it was the right place for me I felt very much at home there.
1: Excellent so how would you then um, characterize your period as an early architect and a young professional architect and your decision to then start your own firm And, and when exactly was that?
0: Well, from from the AA, I mean, I was in and out of the AA. I had a, a sort of a varied career, you might say. But there were a, a group of AA students who started a housing association working in the poorer, some of the poorer parts of London, now in an extremely wealthy part of London. But at that time, um, Brixton was considered to be, uh, it was an area which was predominantly settled by. People from African and Caribbean countries, immigrants from African and Caribbean countries. And what Solon was about, which is the organisation I worked for, was improving conditions in that particular part of London. And so it was African, Caribbean, and working class, or white working class neighbourhoods. And what we were doing was renovating the houses, preserving the houses, and building new stock. I bit there was sort of dent- urban dentistry, if you like. Was what was what we were about. So it was um it was a really interesting interesting time, and we were it was an architectural collective. So we kind of fancied ourselves to be radical and campaigning and revolutionary, you know, in a sort of quaint English English way. <laughs> um, and um, and I went from there to working for the Women's Design Service, which focused uh, what well, sort of did what it said on the tin. You know, looked at design for women and campaign for better conditions in urban design, architecture for women. I had those concerns. And then from there, I started my own practice.
1: So when you started your own practice, was that at the same time that you began working with the Society for Black Architects in London?
0: Um, No, I, I was in my practice for a few years. I mean, I think the first founding meeting of the Society of Black Architects was in about 1990 and it was properly established in 1991 from memory. I'm sure lots of people correct me, but from memory it started in 1991. So, about. so it was really a continuum of being in practice, having those concerns about conditions of women and black and ethnic minorities living in the UK, living in London because I was working in London, and then meeting people from all over the world. I mean, we're called Society of Black Architects, but actually it was a very diverse group of architects, absolutely wonderful meeting people from Asia, Africa, Caribbean, people who were born abroad, people who were were born here, and hearing about people's experiences. So it was a really fantastic opportunity to connect with people from all over the world.
1: And so, do you feel as an individual architect who does occupy these groups of minorities in architecture of being a black woman, being a black woman and a woman, do you feel that your perspective is inherently different than, say, the, a member of the architecture community that is occupied as a majority party? Well,
0: I mean, the thing about being an architect is that you are an incredibly privileged. I mean, one of the minorities you belong to is that of being an incredibly privileged hmm. elite minority. If you like, so that sort of cuts across lots of the other identities, and I suppose the thing about being English and and uh, and I say English rather than British because I live in England, I spent most of my time in England. So the thing about being black and English is that you have these layered identities. So you have I have an identity obviously as a woman and as a black woman, but also as an African, as an English person a British person, as a European, as an architect, as a mother, as you know, any number of things. So these these um these identities are all sort of layered, you know, mm. and you move smoothly or with more or less smoothly in and out of them according to what you're doing, who you're talking to, where you are, and, and I suppose a lot of it also is how you're seen, Because I mean obviously the physical characteristics are, tend to be what people identify you by and the, the predominant physical characteristics are that of being a woman and that of being black. And that tends to condition my relationship with the world at large.
1: So do you feel a certain responsibility to perhaps for as a kind of role model for other parties? Do you feel that you have to kind of represent your identity in a specific way that perhaps, again, the majority party might not necessarily feel that same obligation?
0: I don't feel this as an obligation. I feel it as a privilege, really, to have that perspective and to be able to inform and to allow that perspective to be able to inform my other identities. Because, you know, you can go anywhere in the world and meet other black people and there is a sort of commonality of experience that allows you to get get to places you know get a place of common thinking very very fast Hmm. which for for me as an architect is just so useful i mean that being an architect you have that commonality of thinking through your training but being a black and a female you also have that commonality of thinking just by dint of who. Of, of the way you're born. And, and to me, that, that is a great privilege. I mean, I don't see it as a, a responsibility or a duty at all. I see it as a privilege mm. to be able to communicate that perspective and to be able to share that perspective. So I, I, see, I see it as a gift,
1: truly. And your perspective is informed and enriched by all these different experiences. As you say, your move from Ghana to England and in your various uh, community engagement projects. I'm also just wondering, because at least in the U.S., there's a lot of conversations around diversity in the workplace, obviously, is just a general uh, kind of ongoing topic. But more recently, there have been more studies regarding this because of a few highly publicized workforces, most specifically in Silicon Valley. So you have groups of people who are at least in like a census breakdown would be seen to be very homogenous, mostly white male. And this is not necessarily something that has provoked these conversations, but it is something that kind of gives a, a focus to where people are doing sociological and statistical studies of workplaces that adopt certain diversity practices and the actual economic gains that might be available by someone or by a a workplace that adopts certain diversity standards, not based on necessarily ethnicity or race or anything that something, again, like a census might understand, but simply on background. Yeah. So to say, like, if your background is different, you approach a problem differently. And that could be a gain for the company.
0: I mean, I just think that is. I mean, I just agree so much with that because quite often people think about when they say diversity. When people say diversity, they, of, they often mean it as a euphemism for what they call the, the woman problem, or in quotation marks, or the race problem, and they characterise it as diversity, but actually it's a euphemism for something else. And I just see diversity as a huge opportunity. And there's nothing more boring than working in a homogenous mass, you know, with people all thinking the same, all moving in the same direction like some sort of, you know, um, train. And to me, the idea of um hybrid vigor, you know, that sort of sense of if you have a diverse environment, then the likelihood of interesting sparks and mutations and things that happen, that, you know, unexpected things that happen, which trigger almost like magical sequences, are much more likely that if you have people who come all come from the same culture, all have the same background, or, you know, I mean, I can't think of anything worse than being with a group of people who you went to school with, who you come from the same neighborhood with, you know, whose parents know your parents. I mean, that, <laughs> to me, is a recipe for absolute grim death, you know. And the great thing about London, the thing I love about living in London, is that, People are here from all over the world. You know, you don't you don't have to get on a plane and go somewhere to meet people from India or China or Afghanistan or Albania or Nigeria. You know, people are all here, and it's just a fantastic thing for me. And I, frankly, I don't understand why anybody. You know, what's not to like? <laughs> <laughs> and I find it extraordinary that people see it as a problem when I just see it as an absolute opportunity and a gift.
1: So for an architect in particular, what do you feel having an encouragement of diversity would benefit the profession? As in, what very specific moments of architectural practice do you feel could benefit from higher degree of diversity?
0: Oh, well, I can't think of any, of any part of architecture that wouldn't benefit. I mean, the practice of architecture, any creative art, which... I think architecture is, some may may disagree, but I think architecture is, must benefit from diversity. It must benefit from diversity of culture, from diversity of race, ethnicity, gender. And and, I mean, I probably, just probably because I was trained at the AA, this is kind of part of what I see as the potential for architecture. And for me, being in London, the potential for working out of London into other parts of the world because of the English, English as a a sort of cultural, creative language, because, strangely, because of the time zone, even though we've had our problems in it, you know, Greenwich Mean Time, because of the empire, the history of the empire, and now the connection with the Commonwealth, just gives the opportunity for people in London, people trained as architects in London, to work through the World Wide Web, creating projects, which is what I'm doing now. I mean, at the moment, I'm working in Nigeria, I'm working in Albania, I'm working in London, uh, I'm working in Ghana, and I can do that because I have access within seconds to all my projects across the world. And, and it's absolutely fantastic. And I think that UK architects could just benefit from that so greatly. And I think that, to me, that's the future of architecture in the 21st century, is working across the world wide web across the internet and making buildings with people i mean i can tell you that if i if i was doing a building in the north of ghana i could send drawings there faster than i could deliver drawings a mile away in london you know and and the potential for transformation through that training and through those systems, if they're properly employed, I think it's absolutely magical. So, you know, I I don't see... that. That's what I see. The rest of it, the racism and the sexism and the discrimination, I see as a hindrance to that opportunity. That's why I get so angry about it. That's why I get so cross about it, because it's actually a blockage to something which could be so transformational and so magical.
1: And it seems like a obvious solution to any type of criticism that would say globalized architecture is inherently problematic because it doesn't represent the potential regionalism or cultural sensitivities of wherever it's being built because it's some type of franchised version of a architectural icon or something. And I asked specifically about if there was an area you felt needed to have particular attention for diversity standards because there's, I feel like there's two means of addressing this question of diversity in architecture. There's diversity of representation in the practice, in who is uh, actually practicing architecture, who is able to practice architecture, and who's building in the world. And then there's this other more structural presence of diversity in an organization like the Royal Institute of British Architects or the American Institute of Architects, these kind of national governing bodies of the licensure programs and the policies dictating how the profession operates. And I think most of Ar- Archonnex's audience became familiar with your name last December when you made allegations against the Royal Institute of British Architects in response to an election for the vice presidency of practice and profession, um, where you were up against a, uh, another architect. But that's not how it
0: happened. I wasn't up against another architect. There was a post which was open. And what happened was that an unelected architect, who is a great person, I have no, I have no quarrel at all with with Caroline, at all. I mean, I think she's a great person. She's a role model, as I am. Um, but what happened was that the the people in power at the IRBA, and they've done this for a long time. They do this a lot. Parachuted her into a post, unelected, over the head of somebody, i.e. me, who is elected. Now, I have an objection in principle to unelected people being appointed without reference to council in the first place. I have an objection to that. But the effect of that was that the cabinet, the ruling body of council, remained an all white body so if i had been if i had gone onto that body i would have been the only black person on that body on the ruling council of on on the ruling board of riba so that that to me would not have been very good being a token of potentially a token black person on the board of the riba wouldn't have been very good and the first thing i would have done would be to say why am i the only black person (laughs) you say and Are there no other black people in the 40,000-odd architects in the UK capable or good enough to sit beside the president? So that, that would have been my point. But I wasn't even allowed to do that because that post, that empty post, was immediately filled by an unelected person. And that was my complaint. Now, I spoke to the president in a, you know, in a comrade, in a, you know, in a friendly sort of way. And I expected us to somehow re- what we agreed was that we would have a job share, that Caroline and I should have a job share. We were told by the chief executive and the honorary secretary that it was not possible to have a job share because the bylaws stated. You know, the bylaws stated that job shares aren't possible. So I said, well, let me see the bylaws. Um, no, you can't see the bylaws. And that was six months ago. And I haven't seen the bylaws. They haven't seen the bylaws. But what they did do was to send me an intimidating letter from a Queen's Council, who's a very top, le- top level of, judge, um, of law in the, in the country, Queen's Council, insisting that immediately supply all the information which I was supporting this allegation. I said, look, I'm having a conversation with my friend Jane Duncan. Why has this turned into a legal matter? And before I knew where I was, it had become a very serious legal matter. and, And I responded accordingly. You know, I don't like being bullied. And I have since found out that the way that order is kept in the IBA is so that anybody who questions how things work at the IRBA receives a legal letter. And then and then there's an attempt to enforce a gagging clause to prevent them. For instance, doing this interview, you know, had I informed the IRBA I was doing it, I would immediately be referred to the press office. And if I didn't do what I was told, I would probably get a letter from the lawyers saying you may not proceed. Now you know, for, for an organisation which is all about creativity, which is all about, you know, change, which is all about making the world anew, if you like, helping people, to be acting in that way, I think is unacceptable. And I'm going to, you know, never mind the discrimination. I, I mean, I think that the structures tend towards institutionalised discrimination. In a very, in the sense that, the Stephen Lawrence Inquiry, and, and you know, I was very clear about this. The Stephen Lawrence Inquiry, which was um, a young man who wanted to be an architect, who was tragically killed, and his mother, who's a very brave woman, has campaigned through architecture for change. And that's the definition that I'm using, that organizations unthinkingly build structures, corporate structures, which tend to discriminate against black and minority ethnic people. Now, that was the definition. And what I expected to do, our idea to do, was to use its own mechanisms. It has a great panel called um, Architects for Change to look at this and see how together we could transform the culture. I did not expect a heavy-handed response with the Queen's Council sending me intimidating letters. Now, I come from a family of barristers, and I'm, you know... Lawyers don't intimidate me. And I'm certainly not going to be intimidated by a Queen's Council. And so I just told the guy to go away. And, well, I mean, you know, I mean, I use more colorful language than that, <laughs> but I told him to go away. So, and and since then, I've had people writing to me saying, black people, um, minority ethnic people, and men, writing to me saying, thank you for raising this about the RIBA, you know. This is how bad the culture has become. And it's alienated people. People aren't joining. Young people aren't joining. People, are... And to me, again, you know, as I said, it's seeing seeing the world through the prism of being a black woman allows you, partly through people's response, to see things and say things that other people might not say, you know. So that I also see as a privilege. So, So this whole... Thing about institutionalised racism, which could have been resolved, you know, or reached some kind of resolution by me and Caroline and Jane sitting together over a cup of tea, has turned into a war. And you know, and I, and and so, what I'm saying, I was talking to somebody today and saying, it doesn't need to be a war, you know. Let's cool things down, and let's try and find a resolution. But if they want it to be a war, you know then I'm, I'm not afraid. I'm not afraid of standing up. I mean, because, you know, lots of other people, lots of other black people have stood up to worse situations than, than this. This is actually, you know, chicken feed, you know. I mean, arch- architects, a stall an architectural teacup. you know, is not the March of Selma, Alabama. Do you know what I mean? Mm-hmm. It's, <laughs> <laughs> but it's important, but it's not.
1: You know. So also you are a member of RIBA's National Council. So I'm wondering, because you still operate as a role within RIBA, correct?
0: Oh, yeah, I'm still on council. I've only just been elected. I mean, the funny thing is, this is my first three months of a three year <laughs> term. You know. um, so God knows what's going to happen for the rest of it.
1: And so in March, that is when, um, the Queen's Council or so will deliver some type of report on whatever they find to the National Council. Is that the next step? Well,
0: what, what, what actually, what actually was decided? This, this, the Queen's Council, there, there was an attempt to force a vote through Council, uh, Council, to force Council to vote to, um, allow this Queen's Council person, um, to conduct an inquiry. I mean, my basic point is, that this guy charges, if he's a good Queen's counsel, which I think he is, is going to charge something like £1,000 an hour. My annual subscription to the IIBA is £397. So if you multiply that by three, you get to round about £1,000. So for round about three times the annual subscription, this guy is going to be paid an hourly rate. And if he spends, you know, I mean... You know, you can eat through a quarter of a million pounds on something like this very easily. And we have, as designers, we have the capacity to design a system for free. You know, I'm giving my time for free. And 60 of us on council are giving our time for free. We all trained for at least seven years to be architects. And we're perfectly capable of doing it on our or, you know, or finding somebody to do it for on our own or for at least much, much cheaper and better than that, because this guy isn't qualified to do it anyway. I mean, you know, he's not, he has no expertise in discrimination and diversity. You know, so, so I just said, no, I'm not doing that. And council agreed, and they said, go away, sign the terms of reference and come back in March, and let's decide what to do. Now, other, other people, the the, town, the institution, is trying to railroad it through, and insisting on using, on, on paying a thousand pounds and that. I can't the life of me, thinking anybody would be worth a thousand pounds an hour. I and mean, he you know, I come from I come from a country where people are living on two dollars a day. You know, and a whole family can live. You know, I've got an adopted family. I've adopted a a, a Ghanaian family, and they live on you know five hundred dollars a month. You know, and they think that's pretty fabulous that they're they're living on their their standard of living is pretty good. So. You know, for me, the comparison just doesn't hold water that the RIBA should pay somebody a thousand pounds an hour. And I'm not. And, I mean, if council decides that's what they want to do, then obviously they're perfectly entitled to do that. But they haven't decided that. And if that money is spent without council's permission, I think that's wrong. And I'm going to say so. <laughs> so, and there, I, I, mean, I must say, I'm not. I'm not the only person who feels like this. I have to say, there's a, there's a group of of counsellors who I've discovered, who call themselves the de Ifuse, who are trying to change the RIBA. So I mustn't, you know, I mustn't give the impression that I'm the only person who's doing this. But I I mean, I think, as I say, that prism of perspective as a a black, black female just gives you, just makes things a little bit sharper,
1: perhaps. So clearly you didn't intend and you didn't think that it was the most effective way to make change to a, kind of this whole legal rigor morale around the issue and instead you thought you could resolve the issue at hand by simply personal <laughs> conversation and personal interfacing.
0: Well no, 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 not, not, not just that. but there is, as I said, there's architects for change, which is which Jane Duncan, the president, set up. So, you know, there are mechanisms within the RIBA. There are good, well-set-up mechanisms, and I don't think that those should be circumvented. I think if those mechanisms and committees exist within the RIBA, those are the mechanisms we should use, not invent a new one, which is completely untested. Do you see what I mean? I mean, I'm not... I'm not saying that um, I absolutely agree that this work should be done, but I think the terms of reference, just as if you were building a building, the brief must be right. Otherwise, the building is not going to be very good.
1: I only ask about the kind of inflation of this that you referred to earlier, because I want to know at this point and moving forward, from your perspective, what would you feel would be a a satisfying and and a, a constructive resolution to this whole thing?
0: Well, I think that now that I understand... From the information that i've had from people writing to me now that issue has been in the press, i mean i'm pretty shocked actually from what i've been told you know because it started off as a sort of a germ- almost a sort of technocratic discussion about you know how elections happen within the IMBA and whether the processes are t- transparent and those kinds of discussions and it's actually turned into people telling their stories about how discrimination within the the IRBA and the profession works. So I think that there does need to be, because, you know, the Society of Black Architects is now defunct. there does need to be a lot of thinking and a lot of listening to women, to black and minority ethnic people, about their experiences in architecture and the loss that it's causing, the potential loss of talent that it's causing the profession. Because what I'm hearing is that there are black people who are training in architecture and are ending up flipping burgers. Now, I mean, there's nothing wrong with flipping burgers if that's what you want to do. But to train for seven years to be an architect and end up, you know, in a chicken hut somewhere in London, flipping burgers or um, selling fried chicken, you know, to me, is a huge, huge waste of talent. It's a huge loss,
1: not just to architecture,
0: but, you know, to the society as a whole.
1: Well, I really appreciate you sharing your thoughts and your personal perspective in this, what is no doubt a very frustrating and complex situation. So Elsie, I really appreciate you coming on and talking to me about this.
0: I just have to say that but it's not just frustrating, but it's also enlightening and potentially hugely creative. So thank you very much for your time. I really enjoy talking to you.
1: Oh, likewise. Thanks so much. Thanks for listening to Archonnex Sessions One-to-One with Elsie Obusu. Danilo Voinov edits the podcast, and Matt Skillings composed the music. Myself and Paul Petrunia are the producers of One-to-One. New episodes come out every Monday, so make sure to not miss an episode by subscribing to us on iTunes. And if you like the podcast, please consider leaving us a review on iTunes. You can keep up with podcasting news from Archonnex on Twitter through @ArcSession or hashtag Sessions, or you can email us through connect at archonnex.com. Thanks again for listening to One to One.